Hello swimmers and welcome to Torpedo Swim Talk. Today we hear from highly credentialed strength and conditioning coach Ryan Plaven and all about what we can do on land to make ourselves faster in the water. Hi Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Look, I'm really interested in getting your perspective on strength and conditioning um, with Masters Athletes, but I thought first off um, you could maybe let us know how you got into being a strength and conditioning coach. Yeah, sure. So when I sort of finished uh, high school, I was really I was really into tennis and my tennis coach actually offered me a job to start working as a tennis coach and really enjoyed that more than I thought that I would and so we continued that for about uh, 10 odd years. And in that process, I was studying a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in exercise science, master's degree being in specifically strength and conditioning. I always have an interest in it and the, the pathway which I wanted to get into strength and conditioning kind of took a little bit longer than I thought, mainly because I really enjoyed the tennis coaching a lot more. But that gave me a really good grounding for all the coaching methodologies and teaching mechanisms and things like that because I was just coaching such a wide range of young to older athletes on the court and tennis being such a complicated motor skill, motor skill sport um, really uh, challenged me to find different ways to get different elements and aspects out of my athletes. Um, and then, yeah, I was always interested in the gym. I was competing in powerlifting for a little bit as a bit of a hobby. So always interested in that sort of stuff but never quite took the full – plunge into going into SNC until um, I got to a point where my studies led me to that and needed to sort of pull back on tennis coaching and get involved with some SNC um, work. So did the stepping stone of doing some personal training just with some gen pop people. This was probably midway through my studies and then as started to get more experience through my studies and then just with um, training people in general. Um, started to look for more specific facilities that would be coaching and um, training athletes, uh, which led me to where I'm currently now at, at MFP at Melbourne Fitness and Performance. So that's our semi-private facility, which specialises in athletes' performance. Um, and been there now for, well, I could probably say coming up to four years um, at the specific gym. And, yeah, just now specialise a lot with tennis mainly because it's a sport of my uh, passion, but um, also have a wide variety of sports, including swimming, footy, soccer, uh, cricket, a few, a few others in between there. Yeah. And the, the high-performance athletes you work with at, um, at the gym, what kind of structure do you follow with them? Do you, like, do you work with their, um, their tennis coach, for instance, or yeah. do you sort of work independently of that and look at what, they need when they come into you each week? It's a, a good question because it kind of has to have a bit of both. So from a high performance perspective, when we've got a high level athlete, um, if they're a bit older, so say they're so in between that 16 to early 20s, they start to get a bit of independence themselves. So they can kind of tell you, hey, this is kind of what I need. Uh, tennis coach has mentioned a few of these things. Um, but everybody's different. Every athlete is different. Every athlete has areas they need to work on. Um, someone can work on something that the other one has is really fine-tuned in. So it kind of depends on where they are in their development and their training age. 
Um, in terms of what my philosophy is, I try to give them what they're not getting. Right. So a lot of the times on, if we use tennis as a specific sport, they're going to get heaps of um, repeat ball drills, feeding, point play, all this stuff. And a lot of their coaches will use medicine balls to rotate through um, their shots to kind of give them their uh, quote-unquote strength through their um, training. So when they come into the gym, I already know that they're getting heaps and heaps of that. So I've got to now find my entry point in their programming to what they're not getting, where their energy is leaking in movements, where their strength is lacking to support their movement because ultimately we want them to be moving well, hitting well, uh, fast, powerful. So we've got to just try and find those gaps and fill them. Um, and then once we set a really nice foundation and we've worked out where things are missing, we can start to or continue to work on their strengths too. So if I've got a naturally elastic, explosive athlete, I'm going to want to continue to work on those attributes because that's where their, their strengths are. That's where they're going to actually um, succeed most on the court or in their sport. Yeah. Um, while still working on a few of their weaknesses so that we can raise their ceiling higher um, as they start to progress through their training. Yeah. How often would you see a high-performance athlete each week or how many sessions would they do with you? Um, this, would, this would be sport-specific, I think. Um, with I, I, I honestly believe that once a week is not enough. Um, a lot of athletes or coaches, sport-specific coaches might disagree with that because they want as much time with their athlete as possible. So being a, a coach ourselves in our area, we want as much time with our athletes as possible. Um, so we've got to try to find that middle ground somewhere, which can be quite challenging. Um, but I'd say you'd at least need a minimum of two to three sessions, whether that's two gym sessions and one field session or whether it's one gym, one field, or whatever your exposure points are, um, definitely once a week is not enough. Um, and that's something that you have to try educate um, a lot of young athletes coming in and their parents as well early on because they honestly don't value some of this stuff as highly as they should. Yep. Um, and once they do start to see the benefits and the buy-in to this stuff, then you can start to really push the boundary a little bit more and integrate it a little bit more with their on-court or field training. So you might have them doing their two-hour on-court session with their coach, but then you might give them a half an hour speed session at the end or a running session at the end. So yeah. they're still getting some S&C, quote-unquote S&C, yeah. but they um, still have done their um, sport-specific training beforehand. Yes. So there's some integration there where you can kind of sneak it in. Um, but, yeah, definitely would would want them at least two to three times a week because it's too hard to really zone in on one day and try and get all the training or the attributes in there that you want or need. Yes. And if you're looking at a sport like swimming, what sort of specific um, strength and conditioning exercises would you be looking at for a swimmer that can then translate into movement in the water so someone just coming to you at the start what would you be looking at yeah so th th this is this is a funny one because sport uh, the the continuum of sports specificity in the gym is, is quite a hot topic probably for the last five to ten years is how specific are our exercises to the sport that they're playing and it comes back to 
that question of what are they not getting? So am I giving them the same things that they're going to be getting in the pool? So if they're going in the pool and they're doing their laps and doing their things and then the coach jumps in and say, says, hey, we need to work on your stroke production here to get you more efficient through the water. And then they're going to do some drilling based on that. And then I come into the gym and I go, okay, here's a resistance band, pull it down from your shoulder height and whatever. But they've kind of already just done that for the whole week. Yep. Then I'm doubling up and not really giving them what then what they need um, and trying to fill in the gaps that's causing them to not swim efficiently or perform at their best. So specificity is a tricky one because we need to figure out why they need it to be so specific. So, for example, if let's say it's their shoulder strength that is causing some energy leakage in their swimming stroke and they can't produce it as efficiently, um, it may not necessarily be the specific movement that's causing the issue. It could be the fact that their shoulders or their their lats or their rotator cuff or whatever muscle is weak. So we have to actually work to strengthen it. So I might not necessarily go in and do a a specific swimming movement in the gym. I might do a lot of like, I might do pull-ups, I might do shoulder presses, internal external rotation exercises, even some circumduction exercises, which is rotating the arm internally and externally. Um, I would probably do a lot more of that first make sure those structures are strong and they can handle the load compared to their body weight, compared to their strength levels as a whole, once we've kind of done their initial assessments and things. Then once I see they can handle the loads of the gym and what they're required to do from a basic strength standpoint, then we can go in and get more specific. How specific? I probably wouldn't be replicating the swimming strokes in the gym, but I would be trying to use similar movement patterns so for example if we're just talking freestyle where they'd be going sort of overhead and rotating their shoulder all the way through i might be doing heaps of pull-ups yeah so a pull-up is a great overhead movement it's a great shoulder strength it recruits all the shoulder muscles that are in and around it and the supporting groups as well um and then as an accessory exercise i might then get them to do something specific specific like a straight arm lat pull down or a single arm um, tricep kickback or something like that that's quite similar to the movement but not exactly replicating it because ultimately doing some of those movements under load are going to be really demanding on the joints and then probably have the counter effect of what we're actually trying to do and injure them. Yes. Um, Just just using those exercises as examples. I mean, there's heaps and heaps of others that we can use. But I would say for the most point, it would Follow the general strength and conditioning principles of starting general, create strength adaptations, get them strong, get them robust, make sure the joints, the integrity of the joints are there, the mobility is there, all that sort of stuff, and then start to directly go more specific. And that also will come into play in terms of their competition phases too. So the closer you get to competition, the more specific you're going to get because you're going to ease off on the heavier strength as well, which opens up a whole another rabbit hole that we can go down. But um, yep. for the most part, you would be trying to go specific. I say in summary, you're probably going more specific the closer you get to a competition and the more you see that the athlete can handle it. Yeah. 
I was going to ask you about competition, um, taking it right through to then. So would you recommend still continuing your sessions but pulling back a little bit during that competition, say the week, say you were racing on the weekend as, a, as an athlete, as a swimmer, and then mm. would you lay off your um, strength and conditioning sessions in that week or would you do them at a much lighter level? Um, yeah, I definitely wouldn't. Again, it comes down to the uh, frequency of competition. So if you've just got one yep. competition and then you're going to go straight back into training afterwards and if it's a lower level comp, I'd probably continue training up until, and like you said, you'd either ease off the load a little bit and go a little bit lighter or ease off the volume so you can keep similar loads yep. um, but not as much volume so that the muscles aren't pulling up as fatigued. You're giving them an easier time to recover. Um, and the other, there's other ways you can do it as well. You can really trick the body and you can do similar movements, but decrease the range of motion. So you're not going through as deeper uh, ranges of motions through the joints and the muscles. So it's less demanding, um, but still similar movements to what you've been doing in the program leading up to it. Um, there's different ways. And then it, it comes down to importance of the competition. So if it's a national level competition that you're trying to qualify for, whatever it may be, you might need to look at um, peaking methods that are going to help you peak physically for these comps. So that may, the uh, the deload that you're going to do in the lead up might look a little bit different to say if it was just a, a club comp or a weekly club comp or a um, the state comp that may not be as high level of importance. Yes. Um, I think as well, when you're looking at the, the specifying with competitions, when you're looking at your calendars, if you do have heaps of club comps throughout the year and you're always wanting to deload and not train or, or, or completely take off gym training prior to every time you have a club comp, you're missing out on, on a heap of training that yeah. you probably don't need to miss out on. Yep. Um, which is why you can kind of get around it by doing things like lowering the volume or stop training on the Wednesday before the comp on Saturday, um, whatever kind of works well with your body. And everybody's, again, like like I've mentioned before, everyone's a bit different. It comes down to the individual. So um, you might need lower volume, you know, and then the person, you know, in lane eight might need more volume but less load depending on how their body responds and that just comes down to how the co how well the coach knows the athlete as well as how much they've been tracking their performance when it comes down to competitions. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. Um, I was reading an article um, about the bar NBA basketballers. So LeBron James, for instance, actually does a weight session before his match yep. every single day. Um, it's a very different mindset to, I think, uh, you know, what a lot of swimmers have where you said earlier they're trying to squeeze their strength and conditioning sessions sort of in amongst their swimming because typically yeah. there's been a lot, of, a lot of sessions for swimmers in a way, yeah. for instance. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it, you're 100% right. And it comes down to routine as well, like someone like LeBron who's just a freak athlete and, a, you know, you can't you you, you have you they those type of athletes come along you know once every well more often now but once every five ten years you get a lebron so the for someone like him he's just going to do what he always does um he's still going to he still trains hard still works hard don't take anything away from that but he's going to use those 
you, you, you probably will never find out what happens in those weight sessions, but you can imagine that it's not too heavy. It's just something he always does to go out and get his mindset right and get focused before a match. Um, from a scientific perspective, there is the concept of um, priming and uh, potentiating the nervous system so that it's fired up and ready to go before you go out and play. Again, that, again, that becomes sport-specific. Um, for example, a 100-meter sprinter, that almost be recommended to go and lift some heavy weight before going out and doing their sprint so that they can prime their nervous system. Um, whereas, say, a swimmer or a marathon runner, a bit more endurance-based, might not work that well for them. Um, yeah. You mentioned before about, you know, trying to intersperse all your training because there's so many sessions. That, again, is it's, it's tricky, um, especially, you know, for – a lot of when you're talking elite level, if it's their job, they've got time to do a swimming session in the morning and a training and a gym training session in the afternoon. Yeah. But yep. for the majority of the population who are competing at a high level, they've got to work. So they don't necessarily have that ability to do it both in one day. So you do have to prioritize. And a lot of the time the sport does get priority over it and which does make sense. However, if we're talking about improving peak performance, and longevity within the sport, there has to be some priority shift towards your strength and conditioning and your athletic performance stuff that you do in the gym. Absolutely. I mean, what I know you train a lot of high-performance athletes. What, what's the difference with training um, those type of athletes as opposed to an older, mature sort of master's athlete? What's the main difference that you see? Not much. Um, so you still apply your same principles. The only difference is, and when you say high performance, I wouldn't necessarily argue that a master's athlete is not high performance. Yep. If we're talking, say, younger elite athletes, I think the difference that we've got there is the physiological differences that we naturally would have at a younger age. Um, what we do know is that our a male and females generally, you know, ma- Females peak a little bit earlier than males, so females around that 25 to 28-year-old 20, mark and then males a little bit later around that 28-year-old mark. But we're starting to see a bit of a shift in that as well. A lot, a lot of athletes are staying in their sports longer now as we understand more about how our bodies function and proper periodization within training. Yep. Um, but just because we've gone through that peak and then after that, you know, you have that really slow d- decline, it is very slow. So it's not like all of a sudden you turn 30 or 35 and all of a sudden your body deteriorates. You still have the ability to train. It just becomes the management side of things become a little more of a priority. So, you know, all your little 1% that you would need to take a bit more of a focus in sleep, nutrition, breath work, mindset, all that sort of stuff is going to impact on your ability to recover from your competition and your training. Um, so that you can then perform again a couple of days later or whenever you need to. Um, but all the general things that you would apply to a younger elite athlete apply to junior athletes and apply to master's athletes. It's just a matter of managing the other little things. So things like specificity, I'm not necessarily going to then say junior athlete, I'm going to work a lot on fundamental movement patterns, teaching them pretty much everything they're going to need to know as they progress their journey and their development. Whereas, say, a master's athlete, I'm going to just get into the specifics 
on what I need them to do. Now, speci specifics here I'm referring to is not specificity of the sport in the gym. It's more the specifics of the adaptations I'm trying to create from the physical level. So, for example, <clears throat> if we're talking as a swimmer and they need to be explosive out the blocks because that's where they're slow, I'm going to work on that attribute specifically. I'm not going to spend my time in trying to develop the different stages of this athlete I'm going to try and attack that adaptation a bit sooner. Yes. Uh, then the other things you just got to be prepared to do is that ad adaptations may take a little bit longer to come than a younger athlete, yeah. which we can assume. So you just got to be prepared that we might need a little bit longer to see those results. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that um, that's not going to happen. It just depends on the age, but they just can't, it just will take a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, and the other things would probably be intensity. Um, we definitely need intensity in the training to get the adaptation. I think the common misconception there is I'm going to put less intensity into my training because I want to be careful of the athlete. I want to make sure that they don't injure themselves or hurt themselves or their joints. But yep. you're not going to get anything out of their training if you just continually um, applying sub-max principles to it and then – there's no um, stimulus that the athlete's going to then adapt to. So I think that, excuse me, there definitely needs to be intensity, but I think also because of the longer recovery periods that you're going to need, the intensity needs to be used a bit more sparingly. Um, but having said that, it's not like, it's not like you, have, you go one in 10 session and then you can't do it for five days. It's more across the week instead of doing six high intensity days where there's heavy loads <clears throat> a lot of power training big demands on the nervous system um you might bring that um, frequency down just a little bit and then periodize it a little more over the course of a few more weeks rather than trying to get it in in like a three-week block yes. um and then the other part will be um mobility and flexibility i think as we get older our joints and muscles need more attention. So we need to make sure that our body is staying or, or maintaining that flexibility and mobility that it once had <clears throat> when we were younger. And if we continue to do that, just right through. So if you just keep that as part of your protocols and you on your off days, you're doing your work, you're doing your mobility, it's not that hard to do. It's just people can get lazy with it. And, it, it, and, you know, sitting in front of the TV watching Netflix, just do it. You just do it for your half an hour, whatever you need to, and then you maintain those ranges of motion and the flexibility within the muscles um, to allow you to complete the training that you want to complete. Yeah. Um, other than that, you know, periodization, um, progressive overload, all that stuff, purely, um, purely applicable to a master's athlete. And then I guess the other part of it is it's just, Consistency and like, and that's like any athlete. Um, we know that I'd probably say, oh, without getting too specific, I think 55, 60 is where you'd start to notice a little bit more of um, muscle atrophy, where the muscles actually aren't uh, are sort of deteriorating, not deteriorating, sorry, um, in decreasing a little bit. So I think that's probably where you need to be a bit more conscious of that. But if you're training consistently all year round um, with a periodized program that's, consi uh, that's consistent and um, considerate of these things yes. with 
good recovery measures in there. I think that's probably going to be the biggest one. That, um, there's no reason as to why you can't train as hard or as similar to an elite athlete. Yeah. What, what kind of recovery methods would you be recommending for a master's athlete? <clears throat> well, across the board, regardless of master's or not, number one is sleep. Yep. Sleep is probably the biggest one. Your adaptations happen in your sleep. So everything that we do out in the pool or on the court or on the field or in the gym and the stimulus that you create from that training session yes. occurs in your sleep. It doesn't occur at that time you're training. So you need to sleep and you need to have deep sleeps and well and really good sleep so that you can actually get those recovery um, adaptations. So length of sleep is one, quality of sleep is two. So making sure, you know, you've got a really sound sleeping place where there's darkness in the room, it's not too hot, um, there's not too much sound either, so, you know, a lot of uh, external noise like traffic and things like that. And then it's, a, it's hard to do sometimes depending on where you live, but if you can create a really good sleeping environment, um, getting off the technology half an hour to an hour before bed so your brain's not overly stimulated so you can get into those deeper levels of sleep earlier on Yeah, are key. And then I'd say number two to that would be nutrition. Yes. So making sure that you, you've got a really um, well-looked-after diet. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to diet. It means you have to be getting in all your nutrients that you need, macros and micros, vitamins, proteins, all the things that you would necessarily need to recover well, as well as fuel the body for your training. So it's not necessarily about just eating to recover, it's eating to perform and eating to train so that you are using the correct fuel sources when you do go out and do your um, training sessions. Um, this might need, mean that you need to see a sports excuse me, a sports nutritionist or a sports dietitian to help you structure that better. Um, you may have some knowledge in that area you're on your own or you may feel pretty good about how you are eating. But if you're not recovering well, then you've got to kind of find what what's what's the missing link. So is it my sleep? If, if you know you're sleeping well, you can use, you know, there's a lot of apps now that you can use. Um, those whoop bands are pretty good where you can actually track how well you're sleeping and recovering yes and you yes. start to find the attributes that aren't recovering as well so if it does come down to nutrition um things like your stretching and mobility work is also really good just to help keep that muscle soreness away yeah. um but i definitely say number one and this is one where everyone ever everyone wants all the secrets all the uh, supplementation pills whatever else you want it's Sleep, sleep is sleep is important. Yeah, <laughs> you also mentioned just before um, about breath work. What what do you mean hmm. by that? Um, this is a really interesting area that I'm trying to learn a little more about myself at the moment. Um, breath work can include like when you're actually training or competing is how you breathe. Um, obviously, different for a swimming athlete because. They've got very minor uh, little points where they can actually get, get, grasp their breath. But <clears throat> talking about how you breathe in terms of breathing in through your nose and out through your nose or in through your nose, out through your mouth, creates different ways that we um, breathe 
in terms of whether we're doing it through our belly, diaphragm, all that, and that's how the oxygen is actually taken in. So, and how it's actually, and how well you use it in terms of your heart rate. So if I'm puffed out after a big effort of sprints or whatever, and I'm heavily breathing through my mouth, I'm not actually allowing the oxygen to go in and do its thing to help me lower my heart rate and level my head and all that sort of thing. So that's where that nasal breathing really helps because it goes through the correct pathways. Um, that's one side of things. The other side of things, it's very useful for things like recovery, you know, through meditation and mindset and things like that. So, you know, there's, again, lots of apps out now that, um, that you can use to help assist through that. I'm not actually sure what the names are off the top of my head, but those apps can take you through breathing patterns to help you lower your heart rate, go through some mental calmness and um, focus on that all through using breath because breath, uh, breathing regulates our heart rate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if your heart rate is up or you're a bit anxious or, you know, you're puffing or whatever it is, breathing is what's going to slow that down. Um, so there's, there's heaps of different methods that you can train breathing. Um, but I definitely think it's an area which is something that needs to be focused on a lot more um, as you start to go through higher levels of sport. Yeah. I've seen on a few sort of Instagram people I follow, I've seen um, these little devices popping up where they're exercising. It's sort of like a whistle, I suppose, and it mm -hmm. has it has um, restricted breathing flow through yep. and I've seen people yeah. exercising with those. Yeah, they're, they're quite interesting. And then the other way to do it is you just pop a bit of tape across your mouth and then it stops you breathing through your mouth and it trains you to breathe through your nose so you are breathing correctly and at the right rates. Um, so, yeah, all those little devices and things can be quite effective into how you do it. Um, and then, again, the cheapest and easiest way is just tape across your mouth. And then, it's, yeah, definitely, it's definitely very interesting. You know, you can start off by just doing it in your home and just focusing on five to ten minutes worth of breath work and slowly actually doing it with some exercise. So you might go for a walk but put tape across your mouth. Um, you might go for a jog once you get the hang of that. And then you might do it when you're doing something slightly more intense where you're going for, for a run or, or you're on the bike or something that's actually getting your heart rate up while you're training. Yeah. Um, can be really interesting to kind of see how you can handle that. It can be a little bit um, can be a little bit daunting at first when you first try it because you're so used to breathing through your mouth and you may not even realise how much you're breathing through your mouth um, when, you're, when you are exercising. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Um, it's just really interesting to see how quickly your heart rate changes when you don't. Um, one of the best examples I can think of on the top of my head at the moment is Novak Djokovic. If you watch him, if when the camera focuses on him in between points when he's playing, if you just watch his routine and you just see how he controls his breathing, um, it's absolutely incredible because at the moment he's probably one of the best athletes in the world <clears throat> and um, to watch that routine every single time he plays a point um, you know there's definitely something there that's helping him re yeah, recover quickly in the 20 seconds that he's got before he plays his next point yeah yeah it's really interesting I mean as as a swimmer obviously we don't breathe through our nose in the water Mm. So it's it's obviously through your through your mouth because you breathe through your nose the water goes up yep. there 
<laughs> but, but that's really interesting to think about it on land and how that could help you in the water. I think it's um, yeah, something to sort of like investigate further, definitely. Yeah, look, I, I haven't, I wouldn't say I've investigated it too much and how it would cross over, say, if you did practice it on land when you were doing your cardio training or your, your weights training um, and how it would transfer across. But I would imagine that if you are more aware of how to control your breaths, um you know you can it can have some form of crossover um or you're training your body to be more efficient with the breaths that it takes in um i would assume that there would be some sort of crossover there um where i think you probably have a really good crossover is if you are doing team events um and then it's and you need to recover quick in between you know, um, changeovers or relays and things like that, that could be a really big benefit for it because you are actually not in the water breathing. Um, but the other benefits that it does have is if you are training more efficiently in your conditioning work and things like that because you're breathing better yeah. and you are recovering better because of it, um, you'll have physiological adaptations that take place because you're training that way then in the, in the pool, that's where you get your crossover. Maybe not necessarily in the breath, actual breathing practices yeah. but because you've kind of trained more efficiently yes. through your cardiovascular systems yeah that's where i imagine there'd be more of a crossover is that similar then to um altitude training like um yes and no um altitude training is an interesting one because there, there was it became quite a big topic what uh probably I'd say about five or six years ago, and people were coming out with altitude training masks that were meant to replicate those um, situations. Um, I haven't done too much of it myself to actually speak to it or in terms of actually researching too deep into it, I haven't actually gone down that path because a lot of the research that came out later on was that it doesn't work that well um, in terms of getting what it was supposedly meant to be doing. Um, I think where it does have its benefits is if you are going to be competing at a high altitude. So if I'm an athlete, a skiing athlete, or if you're going to a country that is naturally at a high altitude, that's probably where it would have its benefits to acclimatize to those situations. But and I know a lot of, uh, I don't know if they do it anymore, but they did, like footy teams would go and trade at altitude chambers and things like that. So I think there is some work that can help. Um, how much it helps and how um, beneficial it is for the time and money that it would cost to go and do, I don't know how worth it it is. Um, I'll get a little bit more into it um yeah there was there was a lot of it that got debunked especially those altitude masks uh they they were they were big for a while and was like oh i should use this it's gonna be good for my breathing good for my cardiovascular all that sort of stuff but i think those got quite those got debunked quite quickly um and then you know there's what you're always going to get something out of it. So a lot of footy teams use it as team bonding experiences because it is naturally going to be working harder in a high altitude so it's like pushing each other, mindset training, all that sort of stuff can work there. Um, if we're talking purely performance, physiological adaptation, I'd say acclimatizing to those altitudes is probably where you're going to get your best uh, benefit from it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, there's there's just such a, a wealth of information on the scientific side of sport, and it's mm. so intriguing. And we're always still learning, aren't we? Oh yeah, oh, it'll be ten years time. It'll be the next thing, and there's always going to be something new. But it, it, it seems to seems to always circle back, though. Like you're you're always going to have all these new fancy little things that come out, and you know, glute training was the the big one for ages. It was you know, put your mini band around your legs and activate your glutes and everything, all the other problems will go away. <laughs> but it just became the, the, big, the big thing for a long time. And now it's like, well, you know, it's, it's a part of it, but it's not, it's not the be all and end all like it once, once was claimed to be. And then it just cycles back around to the simple things work. The, the things that have worked for years work because they work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And part of that hard work and consistency. 100%. Yeah, consistency, I'd probably say, is the number one thing that people overlook when they're trying to find the next fancy thing. It's just do the work multiple times per week, multiple times per year, three months, three years, three days, all that sort of stuff. Put your protocols in and the results will show. Yep. It's um, everyone. Everyone wants the quick results, but it doesn't unfortunately happen that way all the time. Yeah, exactly. I know earlier on when we were talking, you mentioned that pull-ups were terrific for swimmers, mm. like not actually like specific of the stroke, but just the muscle group that you'd be using. Mm. If you were talking to a master's athlete, a master swimmer, and you had to sort of say, here's four exercises that are super important for swimming, pull-up being one of them, what would be the other three that would go along with that? Oh, three. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> put you on the spot there. Yeah. No, just, it, it's just hard to choose. So, so little. There's so many that I like. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> we're talking, uh, talking upper body specific because swimming is so overhead in, in every stroke that you do. Mainly part, partially, maybe not breaststroke, but again, there's still overhead elements to it. Um, I would say overhead movements would have to be key. Um, Pull-ups being a vertical pulling motion. Um, the reason why, to elaborate a bit more on why I like it so much is because of how much it recruits in terms of a compound movement um, with all the stability and the strengthening and the muscles that are included in that movement <clears throat> yep. and being, being from an overhead position. Whereas, say, like a lap pull-down, which is very similar, doesn't require as much um, strength and control than a pull-up does, where pull-up is full body and body weight movement that you need to be able to pull your whole body up. Obviously, you can regress them with band-assisted and machine variations through your pull-ups. However, because of the position that you're being put in, um, it's, very, it's a very natural position with where your shoulders have to move should your mobility allow whereas say a lap pull down because a machine depending on the machine a lot of modern more modern machines are designed to um create make it easier to get into positions that for people that can't so machine weights obviously definitely do have their place but they do um they do generally make it easier to get into a position whereas say pull-ups are quite uh, more robust in that way um so i've added a uh, probably a pushing motion in there so an overhead press and 
I'm going to keep that broad because there are so many variations of an overhead press, you know, dumbbell, barbell, single arm, um, double arm, seated variations, standing variations. You know, you can use your legs a little bit in some of these as well. Um, and then rotator cuff exercises. So your internal external rotation would be a key. So whether it's a dumbbell variation, banded variation, <coughs> cable variation of your external internal rotations. But if you're trying to pick three upper body movements, I would say those would be your key elements to make sure that you've got robust and um, high-performing shoulders. Yeah. Um, obviously, our shoulders don't only move vertically. They move horizontally. They go all the way around. So things, um, depending on your stroke that you are in, you probably need to look at um, different movements. So horizontal pressing and pulling um, and fly variations would probably be really beneficial. But um, if we're only picking three, I'd probably say those would be my three. And then I'd, I'd have to, and I'm breaking the rules a little bit, but so lower body um, for swimming, you know, you can't go past a the Chinese plank variations. So these are, for those who don't know, these are almost like a glute bridge, except your legs are relatively straight with a slight bend in the knee. Um, these can be done just on the floor or you can do them in between two boxes where you've got your shoulders and your heels on a box. Um, reason why is those are pretty much where your legs are going to be for the majority of the time in majority of your strokes. Yep. So those Chinese plank variations are really good for developing the hip and the hamstring strength that are required to maintain and hold those positions. Um, again, variations on these movements are going to be determined by your stage of development and where you are in your training. Um, we, again, we go single leg, double leg, holds, changes, fast changes, Things like that will all depend on your training phase. Um, and then face down variations of those, which is pretty much just in reverse, where your shoulder, the front of your shoulders and your toes are on the bench rather than your heels. That just requires a little bit more, <coughs> excuse me, core and hip stability as opposed to hamstring. Yes. Um, so those are probably one of the number ones. Um, I would definitely say a if we're talking more more uh, movement based I'd probably say a Romanian deadlift particularly a single leg Romanian deadlift I think I really like for swimming athletes because of how much hip is involved in swimming um, and being a hip dominant exercise it's a really good way to train those those movements and then um, and it is, it is a quite a hamstring dominant exercise but again we're talking about picking three, so I'm going to go with that. And then, I love it. I love it. I think it's great. I, um, and then definitely trunk work. So a lot of the time when we talk trunk work, we talk, you know, people think planks or hollow holds or um, power off press, which is where you have like a band or a cable coming out from the from the side and you're pressing it over the front. So those are big anti-exercises, anti-rotation, anti-extension, anti-flexion. Um, great exercises to build up core stability. But I think once you've built up even your, you know, your Sorensen or your lower back holds, I think are really good. Um, so any anti-exercise is great once you build to build up this stability. But one key element I think that gets missed 
when you're talking trunk work or core work is dynamic core. Right. So one thinks we need a strong core, it needs to be stable. Yes, so once you've got that stable base, your core doesn't necessarily always stay stable, especially in your water. Your hips are sort of moving, uh, rotating up and down. Um, your arms are moving over your head. So your core is actually moving quite dynamically. So things like uh, medicine ball rotation work or um, uh, if you're going to go more dynamic with uh, your pal-off presses and things like that, where you're still using core strength, but it's more movement-based, can be really effective to developing performance throughout the whole body um, and actually applying some of your uh, core work that you've done. So like having that strong, stable core that you've done heaps and heaps of, which everyone's done all their anti-rotations, all their anti-extensions, all that sort of stuff is great. But then you actually want to rotate. You actually want to extend. You need to flex your core so that you can um, have the ability to move effectively and efficiently and powerfully in those ways as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I know there's so many exercises to choose from, but mm. I think it's good for our listeners to hear just if they are not at all um, familiar with yeah. conditioning that that's, you know, there's a few little places to start, obviously with the help of someone who can guide them. But um, Yeah, definitely. I think I think that's obviously the key is because there's so many variations. I mean, you heard me say there's so many variations of each different exercise knowing which variation is going to be the one to use, but also knowing why you're putting that variation in there is going to be the next layer to that. So not just doing it because it looks somewhat applicable to the sport that you're doing, Um, you know, working, you've got to sort of look at it and think, well, okay, yeah, it is applicable, but does my athlete need this? Yeah. Or does my athlete want this? You know, do they want to look good doing this exercise or do they actually need it? So there would be his exercises that I've prescribed in the past that doesn't necessarily look like a movement they do in the sport, but they need that element to fill in some sort of gap or create some sort of strength that allows me to open a door or three or four more doors that I can then walk them through to create um, some more opportunity for more training adaptation. Yeah. You know, that's that's great advice. Look, Ryan, thank you so much for giving us a real insight into strength and conditioning training. I think a lot of our listeners, it's an area that's sort of like not explored as much. So hopefully we've given them a good place to start. And um, best wishes during this lockdown period. And oh, thank you. Back in the gym in the next week or so. Yeah, seriously, it's can't can't wait to get back in there. Thank you for having me. I hope um, everybody got out got something out of it and was able to give them something to uh, go and work on. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Okay, take care. All right, thank you. Okay, bye. Thank you, bye. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Ryan today and were able to take something away for your own training. Make sure you tune in next week to hear from another exciting guest. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your favourite platform. Till next time, happy swimming. Goodbye.